Will you ever notice how when you visit a place that you haven't been to since childhood, that place seems a whole lot smaller than it used to? Well, this last year, I went down to my hometown where I grew up and was raised. And for some of you, this will explain why I'm a little quirky. But I, I was born and raised in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. So I'm an Okie. That's where I was born and raised. And I had a chance to go back to my hometown. And that was probably the last time in the, at least the foreseeable future, that I will ever go back there because my parents just moved a few months ago um, up to Appleton, Wisconsin, and so there's no longer you know, any relatives or anyone in Oklahoma for me to visit. So knowing that this was probably, it could be my very last time going to my hometown, I went to a few places that uh, sparked some memories for me, and I wanted to show my wife and kids so that they would understand why I am the way I am. And one place we went to was my old elementary school, Indian Springs Elementary School in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. I went there for kindergarten, and then I went there third through fifth grade. I uh, skipped a few because I was so smart. <laughs> Don't laugh at that. Come on. I, I skipped a few grades, went to a different school, and then came back. But uh, anyway, long story short, just seeing this, as, I, as we drove by, the first thing that came to my mind was, number one, that's a lot smaller than I remember it. When I was a kid, when I was in kindergarten, this place seemed huge, and now it's just this little tiny, little tiny uh, school in the middle of nowhere. A uh, second thing that came to mind was a memory from third grade in Miss Freeze's class. She was my teacher in third grade, and one thing she did was each week she'd put a topic up on the, on the chalkboard, chalkboard, and she would put a name up there, she'd put a famous person or a place or an event, and if we wanted extra credit, we could spend the weekend doing a little bit of research, which meant we had to open an encyclopedia, and we'd research it and then just jot down what we learned about the topic, you know, just not anything too major, just a little thing. And so one week, I brought home, I, I wrote down the topic on my planner, and I brought it home, and this is what I showed my mom. I said, I have to do a report on Tar Marshall, to which she looked at that and said, What? And I said, I just wrote down what's on the board. I don't know what it is. And so she thought about it, thought about it, thought about it. And then she came to two conclusions. Number one, the report was actually supposed to be on the Taj Mahal. <laughs> and number two, I needed glasses. So third grade, I started getting glasses. Now here's the point. If I had started to do a research project on Tar Marshall, it would have led me nowhere. If that was my goal, if that was my aim, I would have been very frustrated for that weekend. And here's what we're going to talk about today. You won't succeed at a goal if you can't really see the goal. If you're aiming for something that you shouldn't be aiming for, that will leave you empty, that will lead you to failure, you will not be able to accomplish it. So far, what we've been doing in this series, 2020, is we're acknowledging that with a new year, there comes this renewed focus to think about your goals, your aims, your purpose, what you want to do with your life. Think about your habits, change a habit, add a habit, remove a habit. But one of the things that can get in the way the most is if you can't see that thing very clearly. So we're bringing this into the light of the scriptures because this isn't just a personal issue. This is a spiritual issue in many of these areas of life. And the thing that I want to help you bring into focus today is simply this one thing, success. What if the success that you've been aiming for is not the right 
success you should be aiming for? What if the thing you've been chasing isn't even there? So today what I want to do is dig into some words that Jesus spoke to some men who were very eager for success. And in the process, he's going to give you two principles to apply to any aim that you might have in your life. Now what makes this a little bit complicated is that there are a lot of different ways to define success and measure success. So I'm going to go through just a few of them here because I think they summarize most Americans pretty well based on what I've heard in the podcasts and the books that I I digest. Uh, The first thing that comes to mind is usually wealth. As soon as you reach a certain income bracket, then you're defined as a success. And I think this comes especially from the boomer generation who are hot off the heels of the Great Depression. And in order to be successful, you need to have a stable life with financial freedom and independence. And if you can do that, if you can have property, if you can have a house and have a, a decent retirement saved up, then you are deemed a success. And maybe some of you here today, that's, how, that's one of the things that you've been aiming for or shooting for is you want to have some amount of wealth, and once you reach it, you'll be successful. Now, I'm not saying these are bad things in and of themselves. I'm just saying these are the different ways we define success and measure it. Another way that we tend to do it is with titles, and I think this came up once Americans were generally financially well off after the Great Depression, we started to focus more on how people viewed us. And now it was the promotions you got at work that were the big thing to shoot for. And if you could get a promotion and keep working your way up, that meant you were more important and more successful. And so maybe for some of you here today, you've been thinking about that promotion or you've been thinking about the, the degree, the PhD, that the, the letters you can add before your name. And you've been viewing that as if, if I could reach that point, then I would be successful. Again, that's not a bad thing to aim for. It's just a different way to measure success. But there's one final one I want to point to that I think is much more common for young people today, and that is fame. If people know you, if people like you, if people subscribe to your feed, then once you have a big enough platform, you will be a success. And it's to the point where if you asked a young person today, honestly, would you rather have a whole lot of wealth, but no one loves you, or a whole lot of fame, but you have no money, which one would you choose? And most young people would choose the fame. They would rather have the platform and be loved by people than to have money and not be known. Not a bad thing to want a platform, but it's just another way to measure and define success. Now here's, I just want to verbalize this because this is the burden that many of you carried in with you today that maybe you haven't put into words or put into a way that you can um, understand it in your minds. And it's number one on your sheet. It's on you to define success. This is on you to define what success means for you. From the moment you're starting to think about high school, into high school, beyond college, the question that people always ask you is, what do you want to do and who do you want to be? And this is a pressure that is applied at a very young age. Well, what will success look like for you? That's, a, that's, that's on you to define it. And sometimes we get so obsessed by it that we actually just release it and let the people around us define what success looks like. So you'll respect me if I, if I get the promotion, okay, then the title. 
That's what I'm looking for. Or you'll respect me if, if I have more wealth. Okay, that's what I'll aim for. It's on you to define success. And then after that, once you've defined it, it's on you to pursue it. And here's what I know about some of you. Some of you have defined success at such a level that it made you pursue it and you've lost a lot of things as a result. We'll talk about that more in just a little bit. And what I know for others of you is that you wish you could define success better. Like you've been feeling aimless in your world and you've been feeling hopeless. In fact, older people, probably the worst season of your life is when you didn't have any aim and you didn't know what to do. So you just kind of sat there. Some of you are craving just, God, would you tell me where to go? Would you tell me what to aim for? So here's what I hope to do by the end of today's message, to hit those two things. Number one, maybe some of you would get the wisdom, the confidence, and the direction just to start aiming at something and take some steps forward. Find something worth aiming for and then so worth aiming for that you want to pursue it. And for others among you, maybe the thing you need to do is to start aiming a little better because the things you've been aiming for, you have not been seeing clearly. So, Bad news, good news. Bad news is God never opens up and says, dear Matthew, you were, here's what you should do for the next 10 years of your life. He doesn't give you a play-by-play about what to do and where to go. But what we're going to see as Jesus talks to some people who are craving success, he gives you principles to live by. And first, I want to take a step back. And the first thing with aiming is you got to get in the general right direction. So often with Americans today in our culture, there's so much pressure on just achieving the goal. If you achieve the goal, then you're a success. But Jesus points in a different direction. You see, you can achieve a goal, but still be a failure if something happens. And this is what Jesus said. Mark records it in chapter 8 of his book. We'll look a couple chapters later in just a little bit. But Jesus said, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What good is it if you, through a series of achievements and successes, you gain the entire world and have all the wealth at your disposal, but in the process, you lose what is most important? You lose your very soul. What good is it If you are able to manage a multi-million dollar company, worldwide company, but in the process you destroy your family and you estrange your children. What good is it if a pastor starts several new missionaries, goes to several countries and, and shares God with thousands of people, but he gets divorced and his kids don't even believe in God? You see, you can be very successful in the world, but in the process of achieving that success, you will become a failure in the areas that are most important. So here's a a general principle to help guide you through what to aim for, what to aim for. And here's what God finds most important when it comes to your goals and your achievements. It's not reaching them. It's not the goal itself quite often, unless it's really obvious. It's not the goal itself that he's interested in. But number two on your sheet, God is primarily interested in who you would have to become in order to achieve your goals. Who would you have to become in order to achieve your goal? I want to run a marathon. Great, run the marathon. What kind of a person would you have to become? Do you have the hours available to to dedicate to training so that you can run this marathon? And what would that do for your life? Who would you have to become at your work? And who would you have to become to your family? That's what God is primarily interested in. 
And with this general guiding principle to set us in the right direction, now Jesus, as he interacts with a couple of his disciples who really wanted success, he's going to tack on there two really important things to strive for. He won't give you the actual thing, but he's going to show you what will take you towards it. So it's important for me in Mark chapter 10 here to give you the context. This is towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's kind of rounding up all of his followers, those who are left, and he's telling them what is about to happen. And Mark chapter 10, I'm going to give you kind of the context, then we'll jump into the section that's in your worship folder. He said this. First of all, remember the we. This is to his disciples, his 12, and then a group of people who are following him. He said, we, crowd, we are going up to Jerusalem. And then he speaks of himself in third person. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. We are going to Jerusalem. You're part of me. You're with we. We are going to Jerusalem, and I will be arrested. I'll be handed over to the people who have titles and wealth and fame. And it won't be us. It'll be them. I will be handed over. And then he gets real with them. He goes on to say, we're going up, and then they will condemn him, again, speaking of himself in third person, they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. And as he's telling his followers this, what uh, Matthew also records, as he recorded this scenario, he, he tells people that his disciples were astonished and the crowds were afraid. Because if they're with Jesus, if they're part of we, and if they kill Jesus, then what would be done to them? And so this is an honest question. It's like your boss walking into the, to the room. He's like, hey, just so you know, we are out of money. We have two months of projects to do, and we are not going to pay you. Let's go. And you'd probably step up to him and say, well, wait a minute, or step up to her and say, well, what does this mean for me? I can't do this. You're asking too much. If, if I'm going to do this for you, then there has to be something you give for me. And in this moment, the disciples and the people following are thinking the same thing. If you're asking us to go with you and you say that you're going to be arrested and killed, well, what does that mean for us? They were afraid. Now, for, for today's message, I almost went with a, a section from Matthew's account of Jesus' life because Matthew tells the same story from a slightly different perspective. But the cool thing about Matthew is that it's in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. 20, 20, you got it. But the thing is, we just you know, looked at Matthew 20, 20 a couple of years ago in a message in our Jesus series, and so I didn't want to repeat it. And Mark, we haven't talked about Mark yet, so I wanted to, I felt bad for him. So we gave Mark center stage today, but there is one detail from Matthew's account that I wanted to bring out. <laughs> And it's, it's this real moment where you've got, yeah, you've got the 12 disciples and the people following, but it's, it's this impersonal thing to us. Like we just picture a crowd, a crowd of, you know, ancient people following Jesus along some dusty road, but Matthew makes it real in this moment. Here's how, how Matthew describes it. He says, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and asked him a favor. There in the crowd following Jesus, as he's talking about being arrested and dying, there's the mother of two of the disciples. 
And she hears that her sons are about to go up to Jerusalem following this man who's going to be arrested and killed. And what would a mother in that moment be thinking? You don't do that to my boys. You take care of my boys. You don't put my boys in danger. This is all that I have. See, I used to read this section and think it was just pride that led to the question that she and her two sons are about to ask. But I believe it was more driven out of fear. And maybe just a quick side note. When you are driven to succeed by fear, it will rarely take you to a good place. So the mother comes up, and just reading this for what it is, she knows who her sons are following, and she knows where they're going. And she makes this open, honest plea. Now, Mark is a little less gracious. He's like, this wasn't the mother's desire. The boys were using their mommy as a puppet to get what they wanted. So maybe Mark was a little bit less gracious, but here's how Mark records it, the favorite. So James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. You're going to put us in danger, so just do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus replied quite honestly, well, okay, let's listen to this. What do you want me to do for you? Because apparently me dying on a cross and coming back to life isn't enough. And just in that moment, you know, it's really shallow that they would ask for more, but in, in that moment, isn't there something that you and I can relate to also? That when we set a goal and say, God, help me reach this goal, I, I just help me do this thing. And isn't that so shallow in the context of what he's already done and promised to do for you? But Jesus, in love, he addresses the two, he addresses the 12, he addresses the crowd. He says, All right, what do you want me to do? And in this moment, the true desires start to come to the surface. Here's what they said, verse 37 Let one of us. We're gracious enough that we will let you pick. It's not about that. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. We believe that the, the king of Israel will set up a throne that will last forever, and we want the two best seats when it's all said and done. And again, we might view this as pride, but maybe there is some fear driving the request also. Fear that they were going to lose more than they were going to gain. And so Jesus has to redirect them as he has to redirect me and redirect you in some of these moments where we're setting our aim on something that we shouldn't be setting our aim at. And so he, he, he steps them aside and he has to redirect them. He continues, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. And then he used a couple of pictures that we're not familiar with. He said, can you drink the cup that I drink and can you be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And in those days to talk about the kind of life you had and the purpose you had and the calling you had was basically to talk about it in terms of having a cup placed before you. Today we talk in terms of playing the hand you're dealt. That's kind of the life you have. In those days, they would talk about it as drinking the cup that's before you. Sometimes it's sweet. Sometimes it's bitter. Jesus says, my calling is to accept a cup that is bitter. Can you drink what I'm going to drink? And then he says, can you be baptized? Another... Just a visual way to phrase that or to visualize that is to think about just being poured over whatever is set up for you. The picture is of one of endurance. Can you endure 
what I am going to endure. So can you accept the cup that I'm going to accept? Can you endure what I'm going to endure? And I don't know if they had a complete picture on what that meant, but they gave a very thorough and very mature answer to to these questions. They said, we can. And in his mind, Jesus, first of all, is probably shaking his head like, you have no idea what the next couple weeks will entail. It wouldn't be very long before they're hiding behind bolted doors because of what happened to Jesus. They wouldn't accept it. They couldn't endure it. And then Jesus, thinking longer term, acknowledges that what they said actually had a grain of truth to it. He goes on, you will drink the cup. You will in the future at some point accept the thing that I am accepting right now. And you will at some point be baptized in the same way that I am being baptized At some point in the future, you will endure the same kind of betrayal and suffering and death that I myself will endure. You too will be martyred one day because of your association with me. So you're right to say that someday things will get rough. And yes, you can, you will. But it's built on what what I'm about to do. And then he says something that really is important for them and really important for for us. He goes on to say, but that stuff will happen, but to sit at my right or to sit at my left, that's not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've already been prepared. There's already names on those seats. They've already been engraved with whoever it is that they belong to. What Jesus is saying is, you don't need to look forward to future glory and pick your place. Your job is not to pick the fame. Your job is not to crave the platform and the honor and the glory. Your job is more short-term. You have a calling and a purpose today. Number three, the way I put it for number three on your sheet, the, the thing we take away from this is that you should seek to be developed so much more, so much more than you seek to be discovered. Because here's the thing, if you seek a platform that you are not ready for, If you seek a spotlight that you're not ready to stand up underneath, it will destroy you. Do any search for overnight success or celebrity success or people who win the the lottery, going from poverty to riches. When that kind of success is just given immediately, it can destroy a person. So if your aim is just to be discovered by people, you might not like what they discover about you. There is purpose in obscurity. There is growth when you're alone with God, when you're under the umbrella of others who can nurture you and grow you and strengthen you. And this is why I love we're a church of small groups. It's it's hard to be grown and nurtured and developed, but within your group, people can speak into your life to develop you, to develop you. So that if God does give you a platform, and if it is offered to you, you will be in a position to share what your life is really all about. But James and John weren't in that place. And apparently neither were the other ten. Because as we see, the other ten were quite indignant with James and John. And so the kids were fighting, so Jesus had to call them together. 
All right, family meeting, come on in, come on in. We need to talk about some principles about success that you guys obviously forgot about. So he calls them in, and what he says next gives such context and gives such a a strong principle for me and for you to this day that it helps us to to better understand the kind of success that we should be aiming for. He, He starts with what they were familiar with and even what we're familiar with. You know talking to the 12, you know that those who are regarded as rulers, those who have been given the title as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over the Gentiles. They, they exploit their position and their title because of their power over the people beneath them. And that was assumed. Once you get a position, once you get a title, the people beneath you serve you. You lord it over them. And you know this if you're a parent and your kids are a little older. The first time you leave them home alone and you put the oldest in charge, they lord it over their siblings that they are the ones in charge. And anything goes uh, with, with that first time. And so Jesus says, you know this. The Gentile world, the secular world around you, they work off this hierarchy. And even their high officials, they exercise authority over those rulers. It just keeps going up and up and up until you get to one big person at the top. And Jesus says this because it's like he sees this competition for title, this competition for position. And so he adds four words that I think should really echo through our minds every time we decide on what success looks like for us. He says to them, not so with you. This has no place in the heart of someone who really, honestly, genuinely wants to follow me. You want position, you want title, you want to lord it over people, not with me. And then he flips this completely upside down. He says, instead, whoever wants to be first, whoever wants to be great, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. What kind of person would you have to become in order to achieve the goal that you've set before you. The goal is not to gain a position of authority so you can lord it over people, but the goal, as Jesus would state it, is to become a servant and to be a slave. And this is one of the things I wanted to weave in here because in our competitive culture, it's something important to keep in mind, whether you're running a race, which is by nature competitive, whether you're part of a company, which is competitive, if you're your own you know, independent small, small company, which is competitive, if, if you're a grandparent, and there's another grandparent, it's competitive. No matter what your, your area of life is, there's going to be some, some competitiveness going on, but there's something greater than becoming greater than them. The thing that's greater is to serve and love like only you can serve and love. And so if if you were to ask Jesus, what should I do with my life? Where should I aim? What should my goal or achievement be? And he would give you great freedom. He would say, you have gifts, you have abilities, you have my spirit working in you. You choose where you want to go. But along the way, it will be a success if you can do this one thing. Serve people regardless of your season. If you're young and healthy and full of energy, great. Go feed the poor. Go help people. Go serve people. Volunteer, whatever it is. And by the opposite, if you have no health, no energy, and you're stuck in a bed, 
the way you treat those who care for you may be the most meaningful service they ever experience. Regardless of your season, there is a way to serve. And Jesus would point to that and say, now that would be a success. But I can't end there. There's one more verse that is the most important part of this whole section because it ties it all together. But more than that, it supplies the meaning and forgiveness that we all need. Because here's what I know about all of you. Some of you, you feel like you've been aimless. You feel like you've been wasting your life and you feel guilty about that. Others of you, you've set your ambitions so high that you've trampled other people to get where you wanted to get. And the person that you've become is not the person you want to be. But what Jesus says next speaks to everyone. He says this, For the Son of Man did not come to be served or to be honored, to be given fame, to be given wealth, to be given titles. He didn't come for that. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came so that he could just erase every concept of our selfish, self-focused achievements how we can get better for ourselves. He washed that all away and he brought the attention to himself so that he could show us the greatest thing we could ever want has already been given. And the direction in which we've been placed is one where we're in unity and in alignment with our Father in heaven. And as you think about your goals and where you want to go, I want you to think about one other thing. I want you to think about who Jesus had to become to do what he aimed to do. And this is so incredible because, yeah, it's, it's a big deal that he, he died as a punishment for our sin and then he rose again from the dead. That by itself is a great achievement. But a bigger picture is to step back and look at who he had to become to do that. The eternal son of God had to become flesh and blood. That by itself is a miracle that should just make us stop and wonder forever. The Son of God became flesh and blood. The perfect Son of God became sin and dwelled among us and died for us and came back to life to defeat death for you. That's who he became for you. And so if you're struggling with where to go, if you're trying to reevaluate where your aim should be, here's the question to end with. What kind of a person would I have to become to do what I aim to do? And the things that Jesus would point you to are simply this. If you can serve and love people along the way, you'll be a success. And greatness is not so much about what you do. It's about who you have to become to get there. And as you, follower of Jesus, take his forgiveness and the power of his spirit within you, who you can become, who you can become, is so much greater than anything you could ever do. Hope you can join us again next week as we continue to see different aspects of life clear as we enter this new year. Let's close today with a prayer. Dear God, it's uh, amazing to, to, to think about the variety and the diversity of people, the different gifts, the different skill sets and abilities, the different responsibilities and maybe the different lack of responsibilities that sometimes that leaves us freer. 
There's all sorts of different things that we can aim for in this life. And sometimes the world puts a burden on us to choose a direction and pick the right one and to do the right thing that we're passionate about. But you give us relief in the sense that with you there's forgiveness, with you there's hope. And with you, you empower us to do the one thing that's most needed, which is to become someone we were not to stand in your forgiveness, to know that we're God's children, to believe that the power of the resurrected Jesus is living in us through your spirit by faith. And with that, we are bold and we are confident. We are not defined by our past and we're not defined by the people we've stepped on in the past to achieve our short-sighted goals, but we're defined by a cross and an empty tomb. And I pray that you would fill us with the direction we need to love people around us as you've loved us and so that we can become the people that you designed us to be. I pray all those things in your name, Jesus.